Happy Hanukkah and Merry Christmas to all of you. And welcome to a very special episode of iGen Politics. We recorded this episode earlier this year, and we want to give it to you today because Senator Patrick Leahy, who is our guest today, gave his final farewell address to the Senate floor. And we asked him in this conversation about his book, his long and storied career in the Senate and public service. And so we hope you enjoy this episode during the holiday season. We'll be back next week with another episode of iGen Politics. But please enjoy this and have a happy, happy holidays. Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Xi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And today's Jill's pin is an American flag because we are talking to an American legend. Today, our guest has served in the Senate longer than almost anyone else. He is certainly the current longest serving senator. Our guest is Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, and he's just written The Road Taken, a memoir. Victor and I enjoyed the book and want to talk to him about that and about his years in the Senate, his perspective on how politics have changed since he was first elected, and what changes need to be made to the Senate in order to make it better functioning. And um, although he has been in the Senate now for 48 years, which is many years before certainly Victor was born and most of our listeners. And it's about the same time as I joined the Watergate Special Prosecution Force. So this is going to be a great episode with lots of wisdom and some unique angles. And uh, I want Victor to tell you a little bit more about his background. So Senator Leahy was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1974 and re-elected seven more times after that. Sadly, earlier this year, Senator Leahy announced that he will be retiring at the end of this term. Currently, he's a president pro temper and chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee. He has also served for 20 years as chair or ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, where he remains the most senior Democrat. He is also the most senior Democrat on the Senate Agriculture Committee, where he previously served as chair for seven years. Thank you, Senator Leahy, for being here with us today. It is great to have you here. Well, I was looking forward to it, and I, I appreciate it. I, uh, it's, it's nice to be able to do something like this from home, uh, <laughs> unlike when I'm down in the Senate and have to wear a tie. <laughs> well, yes, this is... This is a casual conversation. Um, so let's start. So you have this great new book out, and most elected officials write memoirs to benefit themselves politically. So I'm wondering, why did you write yours as you're leaving office? Well, you know, I, I've kept a daily journal uh, most days since I've been in the Senate. And as I'm, after I decided I'm not going to run again, I'm going back through that journal and friends of mine said, why don't you take parts out of it and write a book? Uh, nobody can claim you're doing it for re-election, just do it. So uh, COVID slowed it up a little bit, which turned out to be uh, actually somewhat of a benefit because I ended up being the only senator to uh, preside over an impeachment trial. Uh, the second one of Donald Trump. The, the Chief Justice 
uh, declined. It already done one. And uh, as president pro tem, I, I was next in line. So I finished up my notes of that and put the, uh, put the book together. I, I call it The Road Taken. And it's partly to show where the, what the Senate was and could be, what the Senate is today, and I hope it'll be kind of a lesson to incoming senators as to what the Senate should be. Absolutely. I, I think you do that so well. And we're going to get to some of those moments that you touch on, uh, including the January 6th, uh, you're presiding over the impeachment trial for that. Um, but let's talk about your first case in politics. You were six years old and you had just gone <laughs> off riding a tricycle for uh, then Governor Williams Wills, who was um, the governor of Vermont at the time. So tell us about that experience. Do you remember much about that tricycle oh, Unfortunately, I remember too much of it. A friend of mine, uh, one of my kids I played with all the time, we had gone to the state house. I grew up almost across the street from it. He just walked in. There was no security or anything. We had our tricycles. We'd ride them down these marble halls. And we said, well, let's let's bring them upstairs. So we go up these stairs and we, we race down the hall. There's an open door. We go right into it. I go, wham, into this desk. Now, at my age, I looked up at the desk. It was uh, 25 feet high, or that's the way it appeared, <laughs> until this head leans over and goes, yes. I said, hi, are you the governor? He said, yes, I am. Now get out. So, okay. Uh, but he did give us some candy on the way out. We thought it was a great adventure. I got home and I saw my parents about it. They did not see the humor in that. And I sold no more tricycle riding in the state house. But it was an interesting experience. And uh, the uh, even today when I walk into the governor's office, it's ceremonial office now, he uh, he always goes, did you bring your tricycle? I said, I said no. <laughs> well, that, that's, that is a great story. You mentioned your parents. Did they have any influence on your early interest in politics? I understood that they um, worked in the press. Um, but did they have any influence on, on your interest in politics growing up? Well, the press they had was the Leahy Press. It was a printing business. and Although they had owned a weekly newspaper in Waterbury, and um, no, they they urged us to read. And my sister, uh, Mary, my brother John and I, we, we read all the time. And my father uh, would have to leave school when he was a, an early teen because his father, I was also named Patrick J. Leigh, he had been a stone carver died of silicosis of the lungs, which was not uncommon at that time. And But he became a self-taught historian, my father did. And he was great and urging us to learn history. We'd walk around the state house with them uh, all the time. They knew everybody. It was a, a heavily Republican state at the time. My parents were about the lone Democrats in Montpelier. 
but they knew everybody. And I, I loved the stories they told. And it just encouraged me to read more. I uh, had my first library card when I was four. Wow. Our, children's wow. libra- our children's library, I just read everything I could. And I think that I found more and more an interest in what government did and all, as much as a child and as not, you know, from four years old to 12 years old might, might know. But Jill and I, we've talked a lot about libraries and just how important they are and how much they've had an influence on our lives. So that is a wonderful way to just be an informed citizen. And you write about uh, your first real itch in politics, and that was seeing um, the presidential campaign of John F. Kennedy while you were a freshman at St. Michael's College in Vermont. Um, there's so much that I read about um, in history books about that campaign, but I love to hear about kind of from your perspective, what you thought was unique about that cam- campaign and why you felt drawn to it. Well, I felt, you know, here's the youngest person I had seen as running for president. He just was inspiring. And uh, I had gone out campaigning for him. I'm wearing my jacket, St. Michael's College, my undergraduate school, which at that time was all male, uh, predominantly Catholic, and I'd knock on doors and people would say, well, we we don't like Nixon, but you can't really expect us to vote for a Catholic. And Hmm. which is kind of a, uh, I said, okay, not knowing that 10 years later, I was going to be running for the U.S. Senate. And, um, but I was so intrigued with Kennedy and watching uh, the, the election debates and everything else. And then when I went to law school at, uh, at Georgetown, I actually had a couple of different occasions to see uh, President Kennedy in an open car going through uh, uh, down Pennsylvania Avenue with a visiting head of state as uh, young interns do, doing uh, things and students. He had a uh, thing on the lawn of the White House and got to got to see him and see him up close and all, and it was just intriguing. And then the, the sad time was when Marcel and I were newlyweds and we're standing on Pennsylvania Avenue watching the hearse go by with uh, President Kennedy and struck by the absolute silence of hundreds of thousands of people lying there. It was so quiet. We were up near, uh, near the Capitol. You could hear the drums as they were leaving the White House. Uh, and I remember President Kennedy's, uh, the hearse going by, the horse, Blackjack, uh, leading it, seeing one car with Robert Kennedy, not looking at anybody, just with his 
head in his hands. Um, it was it was quite a moving, moving thing. You're, you're going to make me cry because I, I was also in college at the time, um, and I remember exactly how moving and how tearful all that was. Um, I, I also it was part of the Young Democrats at the University of Illinois, and he actually came downstate to campaign, and I was one of the people who was selected to meet him. And wow, you're lucky. <laughs> I know. It, he, he, was, he was a unique and compelling political figure. He was charismatic. Uh, he was young, handsome, had great ideas. Um, and I think it did turn a lot of people into political junkies because he was just so wonderful. But well, you, anyway, you know, you, I got to, uh, as a law student, uh, I'd been recruited. Uh, the, uh, Robert Kennedy had invited, as Attorney General, invited in a half dozen students from six different law schools uh, based on our academics uh, standings and was urging us to come to the Department of Justice. Uh, my wife and I were homesick. We want to get back to Vermont, so I declined. But when he ran for the presidency, I had volunteered. I was a young prosecutor, yeah. and I had uh, volunteered for him. And I'll never forget the uh, morning we'd seen him win in California. He'd gone to bed. I had a trial the next day. We had a special phone in the house. The state police could call me if they needed something in the middle of the night. Phone rang 3 o'clock in the morning. I recognized the dispatcher's voice, but she was very emotional. They said, they shot him. They shot him. Mm -hmm. And I said, shot who? I, it was not unusual uh, call because there had been a, a shooting or something like that. I said, Senator Kennedy, and I'm coming awake. And I said, which one? I said, Robert Kennedy. And we went down and turned on the news and, I said at breakfast that next morning, that's it. I'm having nothing more to do with uh, politics or anything else. That day, a letter arrived and mailed a couple of days before from California. It was a note from Robert Kennedy thanking me for oh. campaigning for him and asking, because I was an uh, official, actually, in the National District Attorney Association at that time, mm. would I go and visit prosecutors' offices, uh, prosecutor groups in other states and campaign for them? <laughs> I still wow. have the letter. I still have the letter. That's and, and I changed my mind about. Yeah. That's quite amazing. He was actually assassinated. Uh, I was awoken by a phone call from one of my law school classmates. It was the day of our graduation. And that was the message she had for me was Robert Kennedy was just assassinated. And yeah, it, it certainly it was unbelievable. Yeah. It was unbelievable. It's, it was, and, and I mean, we had Martin Luther King, his brother. I mean, it was really, it, it put a pall over graduation. I will certainly say that. Oh, um, I, I, I know it did. Uh, I, I walked uh, in Vermont uh, 
that we had a home uh, that down the, out in the country, an old tree farm, I walked the fields, I walked the woods, and yeah. ju just thought about it. But because he was somebody who so inspired young people, yeah. they, they both did. And of course, at that time, I never thought I'd be serving in the U.S. Senate with his brother, uh, Ted Kennedy. Yeah. So yeah. there's um, there's a lot of history in my book. I you know, the the hardest part uh, you were asking, I do it going back through thousands of pages of notes, some scribbled where I have a hard time reading my own writing from my journals of what's going on each day and uh, you know what do you put in, what do you keep out, but. I enjoyed the memories, and I, I knew I was writing it because as we were finishing up, we had already decided, uh, Marcel and I had, that I was not going to run again. So nobody could complain that uh, the book The Road Taken was uh, for a campaign thing, but might be something that new senators could look at and see the way it was. and. The good that it was, the Senate was, and unfortunately, what's happened, especially since January six. Yeah, well, let's maybe jump forward to that part of your book about, um, and and at one point in your book, you say, yeah, the Senate has some problems, and but you're not writing a requiem for it. You are writing a reform of it, a, a way to make it better. And I think that's an important part um, of your book. And I'd like to hear more about that. What you think are the ways that we should um, maybe improve the Senate? Well, I'm not, uh, I'm not naive enough to think the Senate was ever perfect. Uh, I mean, we had for years, it enabled segregation and things like that. Uh, until finally, uh, Lyndon Johnson and others uh, forced changes in our civil rights laws. But the Senate was always better, or was better, uh, when it tried to be the conscience of the nation. I used as an example in the book, uh, you had two, two or three of the leaders of the Republican Party in the Senate, Hugh Scott, who was the Republican leader, Barry Goldwater, who was, uh, had run for president, was uh, Mr. Conservative. And they went down in a time that both told me they had no joy in doing this, but went down to the White House to tell Richard Nixon, you have to leave. I compare that today with people who know and knew that Donald Trump had uh, committed crimes, had done things no president should, and yet they felt they had to go out and publicly defend them. What I'm asking is, go back to where the Senate was. It's a six-year term, and <clears throat> take advantage of it being a six-year term. Let it, the Senate should be, can be, 
the conscience of the nation. There's only a hundred of us for 325 million Americans. Stop thinking about your own reelection or what you want, might want to run for. Think about the country. You know, I I remember um, when there was bipartisanship, and um, you actually in your book talk about um, the culture and spirit of the Senate, and when you were first elected and how it is now. Bipartisanship back when you were first elected was a real thing. Democrats and Republicans spent the weekends in Washington. They dined together. They talked to each other. They compromised, and. Um, you you talk a lot about that, and you talk about the word conscience, conscience, as something that politicians had when you first joined the Senate, and how that allowed members to transcend politics and allow that bipartisan solution finding. Um, members disagreed without being disagreeable. So talk to us more about that and how we could get back to a time where that exists again. It would help if senators of both parties took the long view on things. Instead of, what tweet can I have out to be uh, picked up online the next hour? Uh, what uh, uh, simplistic, either left or right statement I can make to be picked up for the moment? Think of the long run. Uh, I use some examples. Uh, when when I became chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee, it had been led by Jesse Helms, who was very partisan, uh, conservative, and treated it that way. I became chair, and I arranged to get a, one of our military planes and take the committee to several states, uh, what we call CODEL, or Congressional Delegation. We'd go to a state represented by a Republican on the committee. We'd hold a hearing. I'd ask the Republican to chair the hearing, even though I was chair of the full committee. Then a Democratic state and vice versa. We spent so much time talking with each other, finding that uh, conservative Republicans, liberal Democrats, everybody in between, we had a lot of things we agreed upon. And we came together and wrote some of the best farm bills. Uh, one example is a, I wrote a bill that gave the standards for organic farming. Uh, everybody had said in the past that that's just a minor thing. It would never amount to anything. It's a $60 billion industry now in the country, but it's because Republicans and Democrats came together. I've used other examples in that, the uh, uh, Leahy War Victims Fund to get uh, prosthetics and help for people who uh, been injured by landmines and, and uh, whether our landmines or other people's landmines. I, I use that to get a bipartisan group to uh, do some of the first overtures to Vietnam, something that John McCain and John Kerry had done. We did it uh, 
and bringing funds for people who have been uh, lost their limbs from predominantly American landmines. And again, I brought a bipartisan group of Republicans and Democrats there. And they, all the you know, it's a long flight. We sat around the conference room in the airplane. We talked about things. Again, we found so much that we agreed upon and helped later on. Uh, that is the thing that I try in, in the book to point out times when we could come together and we we stopped doing that. We've got to go back doing it. Uh, we saw it here recently when we had a, a session that started on a Saturday afternoon, uh, went until Sunday uh, afternoon and had dozens of votes that were 50-50. Well, we ought to be able to find more common ground than that. So if I can follow up with that, I find that so fascinating as just a young person living this world. You see the Senate and there doesn't seem much, much to be happening. And, you know, reading your book, I was struck by just how much bipartisanship there was when you first arrived. And I'm wondering if you can break it down for some of the young listeners and just for our audience, what exactly caused that um, deterioration of bipartisanship? Well, interestingly enough, I think it was influenced by what was happening in the House. Uh, when Newt Gingrich came in and he said everything had to be all or nothing and uh, for, for the Republican Party. And a lot of his uh, uh, people who supported him on that then became senators and felt it should be the same way. Well, I point out that it's a six-year term. Uh, work out your differences. Find things we agree upon. I've probably passed more bipartisan legislation than any other senator in the last 30 or 40 years. But it's been because we've, we've, uh, we, we've done things together. And again, I, I use these congressional delegations uh, to bring them. I, I use Vietnam as an example and getting the support of then the first President Bush, who supported me on that. And I recall coming back and telling him how I was asked to lift a legless man into a, a wheelchair. He'd lost his legs from an American uh, landmine. And during the speeches people were giving, he was just staring at me, and I thought, how he must hate me. And I, I picked him up. Uh, he probably weighed 65 pounds. I put him in the wheelchair. As I started to get up, he grabbed my shirt, and he pulled me down, and he kissed me. And I remember telling that to President Bush, and he was choked up hearing about it. And he said, you know, sometimes we do the right thing around here. Yeah. And it led to other visits, cleaning up of Agent Irons from Da Nang and so on. But it also helped improve uh, where we're going with Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, I, I had voted against the war in Vietnam when I came to uh, the Senate. I'm 
the first member of Congress from Vermont to uh, to vote to end the war in Vietnam. And the vote we had was in the Armed Services Committee. It was by a one vote margin. I was the newest member of the committee. As part of that vote, even though I was told by people in Vermont that it would cost me re-election. I said, well, what's the, uh, what's the sense of being in the Senate if you're afraid to cast a vote you know is right? Mm-hmm. And there are too many members who don't do that now. And I'm wondering, first, so you talk a lot about in your book how the Senate is a broken place and you um, give solutions about how it can be in- improved. I'm wondering how much do you think that is because of Republicans? Um, how much are Republicans at, are at fault for making the Senate um, what it is now? Well, I think when you, you take a winner-take-all uh, view, that's what happens. And the, again, since the Gingrich time, there's been more of a view on that, but I try to point out to people is when Republicans and Democrats work together, we get things done. I'll give you an example. Uh, I wanted to update the Violence Against Women Act. And I worked with Mike Crapel, a conservative Republican. And I know that he was concerned about the violence against uh, Native American women in his, uh, uh, in his state. He'd been to some of these shelters and seen and heard their stories. So we joined together on that. Uh, He was asked by some of the Republican leadership, why are you doing this? Uh, You know, Leahy might use this in a re-election. And he said, I'm interested in in the women we're gonna help. Now went over to the House, which had a Republican control and they said they couldn't take it up because it would violate the Hastert rule. Uh, they felt that was a sacred rule. You had to have a majority of the Republicans for it. Fortunately, a Republican House member, Tom Cole, Native American, supported it, and we got it passed. We also added the uh, sexual trafficking of children. It was a major step forward. But I remember when uh, uh, Barack Obama, President Obama, called me at home to congratulate me on getting it passed. I said, call Mike Crapel, because if we end, had a bipartisan coalition, and he kept his word all the way through, it wouldn't have passed. And it's just, I've had so many examples of that. Usually they don't get much publicity because they say, oh, it passed it. It was easy. Uh, they're not easy. It means you've got to spend time with each other. But when you have, when you come in late on Monday afternoon and you have partisan meetings and you leave Thursday, everybody leaves town, you don't have the time of members getting together and knowing each other. We've got to go back to that. Yeah. So, and one of the things that I'm curious about and that has gotten so much media attention is the filibuster. And you've seen the Senate um, for a long time and understand its rules better than anyone else. And wondering how much does something like the filibuster stand in the way of progress? And are there any other rules that you think do more harm than good? Well, my first term here, 
uh, then Fritz Mondale was a senator before he became vice president. We worked to change the filibuster rule and we uh, lowered the threshold considerably. But it was rarely ever used. Once or twice, possibly a year, and it just forced everybody together to work on a compromise. Now when you use it 30, 40 times a year, it's lost any any meaning. And uh, whether you're in the minority or the majority, it helps nobody. Do you think it can be eliminated? I think it will be greatly diminished. I think when people realize that you use that just to slow things up instead of having real debate, I mean, we, we use it on dozens of nominations. They're going to pass anyway. Normally, those would be done a bunch of them together in one voice vote. And, but it's done to slow up things so you don't have real legislation. I'd rather have real legislation, sit there and debate it, bring up amendments, vote on them. And uh, uh, we'd be a lot better off. The country would be a lot better off. We, we've done this on some things. Aid to Ukraine, for example. We came together on that. Uh, for some reason, Republicans thought they should vote to block uh, a, uh, help for uh, victims of the burn pits, uh, our military who came back and had cancer and all these other things from it, and they blocked it the first time around. And there'd been such an outpouring from the American public across the political spectrum saying, we owe a duty to these people that suffered in, in Iraq or Afghanistan. And they brought it back up and they got a strong bipartisan support to pass it. And I was very proud as uh, three people have to sign the legislation was passed the speaker, the president pro tem, and the president of the United States. It was the first day I was out of the hospital for my hip injury, and I was so proud to go to Capitol Hill and sign that bill. But it was a bipartisan bill, and that's how it got through. Yeah, that's the way we used to work, and hopefully someday can again. I um, hope so. One one last question about my new favorite cause, which is the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, it's still pending. There's some uh, proposals now before Congress to make the president tell the archives to publish it, which would make it the 28th Amendment because 38 states have ratified it. And that's all it takes to amend the Constitution. Uh, how are you feeling about the chances of it becoming the 28th Amendment? I wish it could be. You know, I, as you know, I voted for it uh, before. Yeah. I've supported it. Of course, we supported it in Vermont. Uh, I think after uh, the recent Supreme Court decisions and after some of the threats made by uh Justice Thomas, I think we have uh, we have to do it. 
Uh, whether it happened or not, I don't know, but I would strongly support that. Well, before you leave the Senate, please tell your friend, President Biden, that it is within his power. I've done some significant research on this, and I am convinced that you cannot withdraw a ratification, so the states that are trying to withdraw their vote cannot, and that the tenure, that the timeline that was set for um, ratification is not binding, and that 38 states have voted, and that's it. So please. We have to have a pretty clear understanding yeah. that, that that is the law. And I must admit, I have not researched that. I just, my position on ERA has been very clear. Yeah. Vermont's position has been very clear. And yeah. uh, we ratified it. Uh, the procedure you've just discussed is something I'd want to research. Yeah. And uh, if, if that's the way it can be done, of course it should be. Um, so during your book, you talk a lot about your time on the Judiciary Committee, and and I watched your um, questioning of Katanji Brown-Jackson when she was um, answering questions in front of the Judiciary Committee. And there was this one moment where you were quite visibly frustrated with people like Ted Cruz and Josh Shawley, or I guess people who were sat on the committee and who really made a mockery of, of that institution. And I'm wondering, you know, I guess, do you ever try to talk to your fellow Republican senators about their conduct? And if so, how do they respond? I do try to talk to them about it. I, I say these things are, are outrageous. I, I know they're both running for president. They want the sound bite. Uh, I said, do sound bites and something else. They were talking about lifetime appointments. And, and uh, uh, one of them said to me, well, you know, Democrats, you're never going to vote for Republican appointees. I said, really? I said, I voted for more Republican nominees to the Supreme Court, the Courts of Appeals, and the District Courts than you have. So don't uh, don't talk that way. But then you automatically vote against uh, uh, Democrat nominees. And I... I think it was, was it Ted Cruz when he talked about her uh, nomination and uh, he said, what, is, what does this say to a qualified white man? And the misogynist, racist comment like that, my response was, walk down the halls of the Supreme Court, count the number of white men portraits from the time the first Supreme Court on the wall. Tell me, how many black women do you see? And, uh, you know, I, um, I have a grandchild uh, uh, who is biracial. Uh, I, she was so happy to see the nomination uh, of the justice to be. And I told her that when we met. And uh, so on the way out, and she had seen her picture in my office. On the way out, she said, um, is there anything I can do for her? I said, judge, 
you already have. Oh. Just uh, the example yeah. you set. That's that is and, so lovely. And uh, you know, I met her, her family. The the irony is just the uh, opposite. Our family, her, her husband uh, is white. Uh, her children have the same mixture. A couple of our grandchildren. Uh, her son-in-law is African-American, uh, daughter is white, and it, you know, it reflects our country. And she will be a superb justice. She'll take office as justice on uh, 1st of October, and she will bring... Uh, a position to the Supreme Court that maybe we start making the Supreme Court look more like America. It's certainly not acting that way as they signed the uh, uh, latest decision overturning Roe. Uh, there's not an awful lot of support in the country for that. And, I, and I, I, again, it's a change in time. I remember when uh, Brown versus Board of Education, which did away with segregation, overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. But the Supreme Court worked for two and a half years on that to have a unanimous decision because it was going to be unpopular in parts of the country. And they wanted uh, then-President Eisenhower to be able to enforce it to say it's a unanimous court. And now the Supreme Court is becoming more and more politicized uh, and that hurts the country. When the U.S. Senate becomes politicized, it hurts the country. I have nothing against having Republicans bringing up amendments. Let's vote on them. They win, then they, that becomes a law. But don't make it automatic litmus test kind of legislation. That hurts the country. So... I want to end before we run out of time by talking about something in your epilogue. You said the advice that you wish you had had for your 34-year-old self as you look back now as an 80-year-old is this, and I'm going to read it. Don't lose that sense of awe, kid. Hold on to it. Treasure it. Don't even for a minute forget what a privilege and a responsibility it is to serve here. And so I just wonder whether there's anything because um, I think that sort of says it all, but is there anything you would like to add to that for Victor and his generation who are the up-and-coming leaders of our country? I would tell them you're one of 100 representing 325 million Americans. Think of that. <laughs> Don't put yourself first. Put the country first. And it's very good in Republicans and Democrats come together for the sake of the country. If you don't, if you let the Senate just become a polarized partisan place, it hurts the country. It hurts everybody in the country. The 34-year-olds and the 80-year-olds. Uh, and... I must tell you, when I walked down the halls 
of the uh, Capitol, I still feel that sense of awe. Yeah. And when I walk out of there on January 3rd, I will carry with it that sense of awe yeah. and a realization that I was greatly privileged to serve there. In my book, I call it The Road Taken. Of course, that's from the Robert Frost uh, poem, Two Roads in the Wood Diverge. Yeah. And I, I took the one less traveled by, and that made all the difference. I'm glad I took the road I did. And so are we. So <laughs> is you. all of America. We thank you for your service to this country and for spending time with us today talking about your book and your Senate years. And um, we wish you the very best in whatever is next for you. Well, thank you. And thank you for the, some of the memories we've shared together here today. Both thank you so much, Senator Leahy. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of iGen Politics with Senator Leahy. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did, and that you'll tune in next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or wherever you follow your podcasts, and be sure to also leave us a five-star review and rating as that helps others find this podcast and helps us tremendously. Thanks so much again for tuning in, and we'll see you next week for another episode of iGen Politics.